0: If you remember last week, uh, one of the points David made was that we as Christians have the freedom to indulge in, to, to exercise any freedom that Scripture does not expressly prohibit. We often turn that around and say, if Scripture doesn't say we can do it, we need to avoid it. But Paul condemns that mentality. In Colossians 2, he says, why do you take the slightest notice of these purely human prohibitions? Don't touch this, don't taste that, don't handle the other. I know these regulations look wise with their self-inspired efforts at worship, their policy of self-humbling, and their studied neglect of the body. But in actual practice, they do honor not to God, but to man's own pride. The point I think David was making was that we, as Christians, need to grow in our understanding of, of the freedom that we have in Christ. We need to teach this. And we need to stop judging others who seem to exercise more freedom than we may think appropriate. Instead, we need to listen to their thinking. We need to talk it over with them in an atmosphere of mutual respect. And we need to learn from each other. As David so eloquently put it last week in his appeal for tolerance. We need to get off each other's backs and on each other's teams. Well, this is the point of the first half of Romans 14. You see, there are a a large number of things that scripture doesn't spell out for us, that, that we're left to work through in our relationship with God. And I'm convinced that God did this on purpose so that we would draw close to him talk it through with Him as we exert ourselves to become convinced in our own minds. In order for this to happen, we need an atmosphere of freedom, of trust, so that we can honestly talk it through with God and with each other. An atmosphere of judgmentalism or fear inhibits this process and therefore inhibits people's personal relationship with God. We need a glassnost in the church. I remember a young man by the name of Brad, who uh, I knew in college. And he had never been to church in his life. But a friend shared the truth about a personal relationship with God through Christ. And he responded gladly. And what a change in his life. A peace and joy. He, uh, his lifestyle began to change some of the things like alcohol and drug abuse that had been part of his lifestyle were, were abandoned because he saw that they interfered with his closeness to God. He could talk about little else than God and his newfound intimacy with him. He uh, learned how to really care for people. Brad grew close to and uh, a number of Christians and eventually joined a church. But the church that he joined was one that felt out of protection for young Christians who might make a mistake, might get hurt. They needed to have rules and policies on all of these questionable issues. Well, I saw Brad about a year later on a school break, and he was a different person. His love for people was no longer obvious. His joy and enthusiasm were gone. And I think worst of all, his intimacy with God seemed to have been replaced by a fear that he was going to do something wrong or that somebody else might be doing something wrong or that he himself was going to fail to be pleasing. What had happened was the judgmentalism of others had made him think that God, too, was displeased. Romans 14, 3 and 4 says, Let not him who does not indulge judge him who does, for God has accepted him, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will. For the Lord is able to make him stand. God can take care of our brothers and sisters. It's his job. Let him do it. There's one more thing I want to consider before we go on to chapter 15. That is a question... It's clear from 14 that we are not to judge each other. Paul says it five times there in chapter 14. Jesus himself said it in Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. Well, what about when we see somebody who really is involved in sin, who's destroying their lives? Shouldn't we say something? Shouldn't we do something? Several times over the past few years, we have come before you as a church church, And told you about someone who was trapped by sin. And asked you to pray for them and appeal to them. Well, is this a contradiction of these principles here? I don't think so. Paul himself says in Galatians 6, If a man is caught in any trespass, you who are mature, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to himself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. See, we're called to go after them. In fact, Jesus commands us to do that in in Matthew 18. Well, how do these two fit together? I'd like to uh, take a quick glance at Matthew 18 uh, to try to answer that question. Verses 12 through 14 of Matthew 18, Jesus had just finished telling a story about a man who had a hundred sheep. And one of those sheep wanders off. He was in danger. Because this man loves his sheep so much, he goes after that one sheep. And then Jesus says, verse 15, And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won a brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax-gatherer. See, these chapters, chapter 14 and 15 of Romans, chapter 18 of Matthew, are all about love. Love is tolerant. But love does not just abandon someone who is destroying their lives with sin. What we are called to do here in Matthew 18 is when we see a brother or sister who is entrapped to go to them. Well, if we do that, how do we know that we're not just going to them about our own personal hang-ups? I mean, that's what chapter 14 was all about, to stop judging each other, try to stop putting your decisions on them. Well, how do we know that we're not just doing that? First of all, we go to Scripture. God has told us of, of several things, of many things that will destroy us. Things such as sexual immorality, bitterness, dishonesty, gossiping, drunkenness. a variety of things that God has told us very clearly will destroy us. Well, if that's the situation, it's clear you need to go to that brother or sister. But even then, there are other safeguards built into the process. You see, the first step is for you to go to them alone. To tell no one. Don't tell your wife. Don't tell your husband. Don't tell your friends. Don't tell your pastor. Don't even share it as a prayer request. Tell no one. Now, there may be a a point where you need to talk it over with someone because you're unsure how to proceed. And that's all right. But make sure you do it in a way that does not uh, reveal who you're talking about, that doesn't cause people to be suspicious, doesn't cause someone's character to be brought into question. Then you go to that person yourself and you talk it over with them. And if they listen to you, if they turn away from that sin, you have won a brother. You've helped them. But on the other hand, it may be that you were wrong, that you misjudged them, you misunderstood, you misinterpreted. Well, in that case, you've learned that and your understanding has grown. And the fact is that you too, as a brother, as brothers in Christ, will be closer, more honest, more open with each other. You understand each other better. Now, if the two of you cannot agree, then the next step comes in. Verse 16. But if he will, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So you take one or two with you so that the four of you can then sit down and talk it through. And these other two can provide some objectivity, can keep it from becoming just a personality thing. Again, if they realize that it, that really you are the one at fault, they can tell you that. And again, you have the opportunity to perhaps to repent from judgmentalism or perhaps to uh, grow in your understanding of the gospel or of what's going on. If, though, it is the fact that the other is sinning, they too have a chance, an opportunity to repent and be delivered from this thing that's going to destroy them. Now, if they refuse to listen even to the four of you, then what Jesus said is it needs to be told to the church. Not as a punishment. Not so that the people in the church can shake their heads and click their tongues. See, we cannot look down on somebody who is caught in sin because any one of us could be the next. We are all vulnerable. We are all weak. We all need each other to love each other this way. The purpose of the whole process is so that, as a church, we might pray and encourage them, and through the encouragement and prayer, that they might find the strength to turn away from this sin. Now, if they don't, if they can't, you can be assured that they are trapped. Realize, sin enslaves. It takes over our lives. It destroys our lives. It destroys our our self-respect and our relationship with others. It causes us to do things we don't really want to do. To hurt people we don't really want to hurt. See, God hates sin. Not because He's uptight and intolerant. He hates sin because He knows what it does to us. How it destroys us. How it destroys closeness, closeness and intimacy between people. He hates it because it traps us. It's like a bad dream that you cannot wake up from. And so this entire process is engineered so that we can help each other, we can love each other, and we all need it. This isn't the job of the elders. This isn't the job of the pastors. This is the job of each of us to when we see this happening, to love someone enough to go to them. And finally, if they still won't listen to the church, and I've only seen this happen once or twice in my life, They're to be put outside the protection of the church so they can face the consequences of their sins quickly and even then be brought to repentance. This is a painful process. It's hard. It's scary to go to somebody. You don't know how they're going to respond. You don't know really how to go about it. But it's the loving thing to do. It's also sometimes... uh, A repulsive process. We shy away from it. And I think this is is partly because we view it as a punishment. Even the term we use, discipline, sounds like punishment. It isn't. It's a loving, gentle, tender reaching out. Our image of it can often be self-righteous. Well, if it happens that way, then it's wrong. It's dead wrong. Like so many things, it's, done, it's right only when it's done right. It's right only when it's done out of love and done lovingly. But when it is done right, it is the most loving thing we can do. It is the way we express our love to our friends. I was in a church one time where this process was brought to the point of announcing uh, someone's sin to the church so that they could pray for them and encourage them. But the problem was this particular sin involved two people and only one was being brought before the church. this was wrong. This was unfair. It was unjust. But who was wronged? Who received the injustice? The person that was lovingly pursued? No. The person that received the wrong was the one that was left abandoned, neglected, to struggle and drown in their own sin with no one going to them, trying to reach out, trying to encourage them. Again, this is how we can love people. Love is tolerant. Love is compassionate. It's understanding. It's patient. It's forgiving. But let's not confuse these things with negligence or allowing our own insecurity to to keep us from really loving people, from going after them, from loving them enough to reach out to them, give them help when they're gripped by sin. Well, there's a person in this congregation who is currently gripped by sin. its I don't think it's appropriate at this time for me to tell you who, or even to tell you much of the details. It's a person who is divorcing their spouse. Please don't start trying to figure out who it is. Uh, instead, please pray. Pray that God would deliver them from the lie that divorces the easy way out. They have uh, refused to listen to this truth as as one and then several have gone to them. They know it's wrong. They've admitted that, but they just cannot turn from it. So pray that God would deliver them. Pray for His protection. Okay, now on to Romans 15. This is a uh, churchgoer's nightmare. We're... 15 minutes into the sermon and I haven't got to verse 1. Let me read the first three verses. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. Paul is calling the strong Christians to bear or to carry the failings of the weak. And this isn't just a a polite suggestion. The term that Paul uses for ought is a term that refers to a duty or an obligation, a responsibility. What he is saying is that the strong Christians have a responsibility to take some thought, some concern for the weak Christians and the things that they're struggling with. Now who are the strong and who are the weak? Well, in this passage in 14 and 15, the strong are the Christians who so thoroughly understand God's goodness and His grace that they've learned to relax in His love and they don't get caught up too much in worrying about do's and don'ts. And the weak our brothers and sisters in Christ who have not fully grasped the grace of God. That in Christ, you are acceptable. You are accepted. And that nothing we can do or not do adds one bit to that acceptance. You see, if you are in Christ, you are delightful to God. Every bit as delightful as if you were Christ Himself. See, in failing to understand this, These weak Christians feel that they need to earn their security by their own efforts. Or they need to to prove their value by their good behavior. And so they're left insecure and fearful. And what Paul is calling the, the stronger brothers, the stronger Christians, is to take responsibility for the weak and not just please themselves. Not just ignore their weakness, and not just dismiss them. He's to seek to please or to accommodate the weaker brother. Now what does this mean? Does this mean that he is to act like he doesn't do certain things he really does, or to act like he believes things he doesn't really believe? Is the, is the stronger brother to become a hypocrite? Is he to give in to the tendencies toward legalism? You know, if you give in to a legalist, they just keep coming. I read last week of a Dr. Carl McIntyre who was condemning fellow Christians for going along with the conversion from Fahrenheit to Celsius because he was convinced that this was a communist plot to take over the world and Christians who got themselves involved in that were sinning and they were wrong. They needed to be pushed out of the church. I guess this is what uh, people mean when they say the communists are taking over by degrees. (laughs) You know, this is ridiculous, but it's true. And this mentality is not at all uncommon. So is Paul saying that we should give in to legalism? No, Paul never gave in to legalism. But what he is saying is that we cannot selfishly, carelessly dismiss our brothers and sisters who are troubled by our decision or who disagree with us. We can't just ignore them. We need to reach out to them and love. Listen to J.B. Phillips' translation in verse 1. We who are strong in faith ought to shoulder the burden of the doubts and the qualms of others and not just go our merry way. You see, we know that Christianity is not about do's and don'ts, but it is about love. And Christ is our example here on love. He loved us enough not to take all his freedoms, all his prerogatives as God or even as a man. He loved us enough even to be willing to be reproached, to be misunderstood, to be spoken poorly of, thought poorly of, in order to, as verse 2 says, to seek our good, our edification, to build us up Following his example, we need to be ready to do what it takes to love our fellow Christians, even to the point of being misunderstood or thought poorly of in order to seek their good, to build them up. Well, what does it take? Sometimes it takes giving up our freedoms because a younger Christian would be confused by it or would be led to do something that he in his heart thought was wrong, and therefore be harmed in his faith. Jesus, our example, shows this kind of discretion. But at other times, what you see Jesus do is to stand against the error, to confront it, like he did when, with the religious leaders who were critical of his conduct on the Sabbath. For Jesus, to let that error go unchallenged would have been unloving. You see, what Jesus did in the the different situations may have been different, but his motive was always the same, to build them up, to seek their good. He never acted out of stubbornness, out of unwillingness to give anything up, even his life, out of a desire to have his own way, out of selfishness. He never responded out of these things. In fact, that's what these... Chapters in Romans that we're looking at are all about not what's right, who should do, who is right, who is wrong, setting up rules. What it's about is reminding us that what is important is loving each other. That is the priority. And God, through these chapters, calls us to be willing to die, willing to die to our desire to do whatever we want, willing to, des- to die to our desire to be right or even to our desire to live our own lives and not get involved in anybody else's business. He calls us to die to these things in order to love. Why do you think he calls us to love like this? I mean, there are times when that is a real drag. To have to put up with somebody who's critical of us, and not only put up with it, but care. To go to that person and talk it through with them. To maybe change our lifestyle out of protection for them. To really give up things that are important to us. To go after people who are sinning so that we can love them. That is a real burden. I don't know any other way to look at it. Why does God call us to that? Does He like to just weigh us down so that we don't get the gusto in life? Well, if you're asking that question, my weak brother, you don't understand the goodness of our God. You see, this is the way God loves. He tried it and He likes it. You see, He wants us to experience a quality of life that leaves selfishness and pettiness in the dust. One of the mind blowers of Christianity, I think, is that we discover there freedoms that we never even knew existed. One of those freedoms is the freedom from the slavery of selfishness. I was talking with a friend who I greatly respect recently. He was telling me of some very difficult circumstances God had been taking him through and some very hard lessons he was learning about himself. And as he was telling me the, these gruesome things, his peace and his joy were just overwhelming. So I stopped him in the middle and I said, why, why does this stuff make you happy? And he said, because I've discovered that I don't have to be angry. I don't have to control situations. I'm free. I can trust God. Now that's a freedom. That's a real freedom. I was, uh, remember watching a, a Twilight Zone episode a long time ago, in which a little boy uh, was given the ability to wish for anything he wanted. He started off by wishing for a lot of candy and toys. Then he realized his little sister annoyed him. So he wished that she couldn't talk. And then his parents crossed him. So he wished they were gone. And he would start wishing for, for friends to come over. But after a while, you know, children get into disagreements and squabbles. So he'd wish them dead or gone. Tried watching television, but because he could control the outcome of the shows, got very bored. And the way that this episode ended up was this little boy sitting alone in a room full of toys and treats. A totally miserable little boy. You see, getting Our way is not life. Loving like God loves is. Well, where can we get the resources to love like God loves? Where can we gain the the fortitude and the courage to keep at it? I mean, any of us can do it for a little while. Some of us maybe a minute or two. But where can we get the courage and the fortitude to keep going after it? Where can we gain the the information, the instruction, to know how to do it, to know when to yield right, or when to stretch a brother and sister by letting them see someone who is obviously filled with God's Spirit, exercising freedom? How can we gain this information? Where can we find hope that we can love like God loves? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verses 4 through 6 give us the answer to that question. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and encouragement of Scripture we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord or unanimously you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, he starts off by saying the first resource we have is the scripture. There's instruction there. And as we feed on the truths that are in scripture, we gain perspective. We understand that the priority is unity and love. And we gain strength, fortitude, which is another translation of the word perseverance, and encouragement. If we isolate ourselves from scripture, we quickly lose perspective. We forget what the priorities are. We find ourselves discouraged, lacking the fortitude to really pursue love. And we find ourselves caught up again in the selfishness and the self-promotion that's all around us. Ultimately, the source of these resources is God himself. He gives us the fortitude. He gives us the encouragement. He gives us the hope. And He will give us the ability to be of one mind with each other. Now what is this one mind? Does that mean we all think the same? Obviously not. The last two chapters have all been about the fact that we think very differently. That's the problem. That's why we run into conflict. Because we look at life differently. We make different decisions. So it's not that we all think the same, but that we all think about each other the same. We treat each other, we think of each other with the same respect, with the same value for each other, the same appreciation of each other, the same commitment to each other's success and well-being and growth, regardless of the differences in our thinking. And the result is that unanimously we glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with these uh, resources available, the Scripture and God who provides these resources, if all we will, if we will ask, with these resources available, Paul gives us a direct command, verse seven. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. We are to accept each other, literally to take each other to ourselves. Embrace each other into our circle of friends as Christ has accepted us. And how has He done that? Has He waited for us to get our act together? Has He waited for us to uh, agree with Him on everything? Has He waited for us to get our, our, our personalities so they're smooth and unabrasive? Is He waiting to be sure that being close to us won't cause him pain, that he won't get hurt again. Well, personally, I'm awfully glad he is not waiting because he'd still be waiting for me. He accepts us just as we are. And that's how we're called to accept others, just as they are, knowing full well that we'll be hurt in the process. Paul then goes on to show that Christ has accepted both Jew and Gentiles. In fact, as he says, all nations and all types of people, the term Gentiles here could be translated Nations, verses 8 through 12. It says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to Thee among the Gentiles and I will sing to Thy name. And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the people praise Him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. I'd like to say a couple things about these verses. First, I uh, would feel derelict as missions pastor if I didn't point out that these are further evidence and confirmation that it has always been and still is God's plan to draw to himself people from all nations, all peoples, all countries, from all over the world. And it's our conviction of this that causes us to be constantly training and sending and supporting missionaries and involved in missionary projects. By the way, please pray for uh, Janet Funchan. She's back in the Philippines now. She, uh, We are working through identifying an agency for her to be working with. Pray for Tom and Melissa Manning, who are in... Uh, Pasadena getting some more training. They're about halfway on their support. They're still needing about half of it. Run over and talk to Stephen Holly Newman, who are back with us from Singapore. But anyway, the real point of the inclusion of these verses in the passage lies in the fact that the tensions, the struggles that these people were going through in Rome, were due to the fact that you had several cultures coming together. And that these cultures were different and people didn't understand each other. They were confused and they were, as a result, judging each other. How would you feel if a Filipino Christian walked up to you and stuck out his middle finger in your face? You'd say, my gosh, you'd be offended. This guy's rude. This guy's terrible. How ungodly could he be? Well, in the Philippines... To call someone like this means exactly the same thing. And Americans go over and they say, Excuse me, come here. And the Filipino Christians say, My gosh, how can that be a Christian? How could they possibly do that and make any claim to be loving? When we were over there, we had to learn that you call your children like this. Or what about if you ask a Filipino a question and they said, Uh oh. You go, What's this guy's problem? Why didn't he answer my question? How impolite could he be? Well, the fact is, that's a very polite response in the Philippines. Because, uh uh-oh, means yes, or I understand you, or I hear what you have to say. And they communicate a lot with their mouths. They don't point with their finger. That's very rude. They point with their lips. They communicate with your lips. And if you don't understand these types of cultural differences, you walk through life thinking, these are terribly ungodly, rude people. And you go through judging them. And as an American over there, you become... Uh, Judged, They say, what is this guy's problem? These Americans are all so ungodly and so rude. And as a result, you you start to develop in factions and your trust for each other deteriorates. Unless you understand that these are, are cultural differences and that these cultural differences can be addressed when we trust each other enough to talk things through and to understand and to accommodate our behavior to each other. That's what Paul is calling us to do. Here in America... What's happened since the 60s is that the answers that our culture has given to the life's questions like child rearing or sex roles or how you deal with grieving or with, with significant events in your lives, uh, how you uh, relate to, to other people, what is polite behavior, what your priorities should be, these kinds of things, the answers that our culture has given have been challenged. We are left with very few, if any, cultural imperatives. Instead, we are left with a situation where these questions need to be answered by personality and personal press preference. So what we have here in Boise is not a few cultures coming together and causing confusion. What we have is a large number of personalities coming together without a, a, a cultural mandates that cause us all to conform to a certain way. We each figure it out for ourselves. We have to figure out for ourselves When and how to discipline our children. Whether to spank them, if so, whether to use our hand or a spoon. We have to figure out, is it right for a a, a wife and a mother to work outside the home if she doesn't have to? Should we put our children in homeschool, public school, Christian school? How do we view singleness? Is it right for a roommate to squeeze the toothpaste tube from the middle instead of the end? You know, what, how much debt is tolerable? How do we relate to each other? How do we communicate friendship? Do we pursue in our relationships or do we give people space? Do we confront or do we just accept? How do I deal with uh, trends in my culture or my society or legislation that I disapprove? Am I to march? Am I to, to, to lobby? Now these kinds of questions are questions that we each must address for ourselves and come to conviction in our minds because it's based on those convictions that we will then act. And having gone through the difficult process of being convinced in our own minds, often these issues are very important to us, we're very sensitive about. It's been my experience that these types of questions and the differences that Christians, uh, different conclusions that Christians come to are the major source of conflict, disunity, confusion, hurt feelings among us here. Not as much uh, issues like drinking or dancing or smoking, the things we talked about last week. But these personality issues, these decisions, these preferences that we have, have come to. But we need to understand that the principles applied to cultural differences are just as applicable to these differences. We don't judge someone who has come to a different decision than us. Who are we to judge the servant of another? Before God, they will stand and fall. And stand, they will, because the Lord is able to make them stand. And we cannot disregard or selfishly uh, uh, ignore someone who struggles with the decisions we've made who has a problem with that and wants to come and talk to us about it, or is struggling with that, we can't abandon them. We need to reach out to them and love them as someone whom Christ has died for. In all of this, I think it's essential that we remember three things. First, God has given us a very simple job description when it comes to others. It's not easy, but it's very simple. It is not our job to change other people. It is not... Our job to convince them that we are right. Or even to be right, actually. It is not our job to win their respect by the force of our arguments. It is our job to love them. And that means encouraging them in their relationship with God. Supporting them in the decisions that they have made. Really, honestly, deeply desiring their success. And finally, the the uh, or no, excuse me. The second thing to remember is that none of us have it together yet. We need each other. We're all in process. We're all trying to figure it out together with God as we talk it over and as we pray about it and as we examine the scriptures. So let's work together with patience with ourselves and with each other, free to honestly talk things out without being critical of the decisions that the other has made, to honestly share the information that we have gained from our experience and our decisions so that we can all become more skillful in our decisions. There's so much we can learn from each other if we will just swallow our pride and let God teach us. And now, finally, the, the, the third thing to remember. That as David said last week, the differences don't make any difference. You've got to remind yourself this. You've got to remind yourself this constantly. When you, when you see that aggravating difference in this other person, the decision they made that you just quite, can't quite settle with. Difference, different is not inferior. That's a lesson we've got to learn. It's a lesson that that my wife Becky and I have had to learn because we are very different people and we've learned that in several areas. One area is just the fact that I am the type of person who sorts things through in my head. I don't like to talk about it. I just like to get alone and sort it out, which is okay, I guess. But Becky's the kind of person who, in order to work it through, likes to talk about it and likes to sort it out by talking it through with somebody. And what will happen is that uh, something upsetting will happen, and I will think, well, what's the most loving thing to do? Obviously, from my perspective, I'll give her space. Let her work it out. And her response is inevitable. Why doesn't he care enough to come and ask me questions and to bring it out and to help me work it through? Or she will say, what's the most loving thing to do? Obviously, it's to go and ask him questions and and, and draw it out of him. That's the loving thing to do. That's what I'd want somebody to do. And while she's loving me like this, I'm sitting there grumbling, going, why doesn't she just leave me alone? Let me figure this out. See, it wasn't until we appreciated the fact that different isn't inferior. It's just different that we could begin to trust each other and understand And accept each other. And really learn from each other. To learn how to love skillfully. Not just be able to do what I feel. But to learn how others think. And how to minister to other people as they are. Not as how I want them to be. And as a result of working through that. We have a delightful relationship. Even though we're different. Another uh, example I'd like to to give you is our, our growth group. In our growth group we have... One couple who've chosen to homeschool. Another couple who have uh, their's, their children in public school. And Becky and I have our children in, in Cole Christian School. There have been times when one or the other of us would express our opinions very strongly. And those who had made different decisions would be tempted to be offended. But we, what I've discovered is that the commitment we have to each other and to each other's success is so strong that those differences really, honestly, do not make a difference. We are thoroughly behind each other. We support each other in the decisions that we have made. I know that I can share some of the problems associated with having our children in a private school and know that the rest of those guys will get behind me and encourage me, pray for me, try to help me in that context, not challenging that decision... But taking that decision as the starting place and trying to make us successful as a family. And I know that the couple that homeschool can share the same thing about problems that are associated with homeschooling and know that we will try to come alongside them and encourage them, not challenging that decision, but in trying to help them be successful in accomplishing what they've set out to accomplish. And the same is true of those that have their their children in the public school. We can trust and support each other in the decisions we've made, even though our decision may be very precious to us. But it's just different. What I've discovered is that the joy and the peace that comes from this kind of mutual respect and support is actually enhanced by the fact that we are so different. I know their commitment to me and to the success of my family. And I trust that they know my commitment to them and their success. We are very different, but we are united in Christ. The result of behaving like this in the body, of treating each other this way, is verse 13. <clears throat> now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, now may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. It could also be translated in trusting. Trusting each other. Trusting God to take care of each other. To lead each of us. Fill us with hope or joy and peace in trusting that we may overflow in hope by the power of of the Holy Spirit. We experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our midst causing us to overflow with hope. Selfishness, pride, a desire to be right, desire to win, a concern over our reputation, what others think of us. These are all traps. They may give us what we thought we wanted. Victory in an argument. Getting our way. Looking good. But these are hollow rewards. Leaving us without peace. Leaving us without joy. Without trust. Without hope. Without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Instead, let's enjoy all that God has for us. And what He has for us is peace and joy, trust and hope, and the power of the Holy Spirit poured out in our lives through Christ. Well, let's pray. Lord, I uh, do confess before you that, uh, that so quickly and so easily I lose perspective, forget what's important, try just to win the argument, try just to come off looking good, looking like the one who is right, Lord, I ask that for each of us that you remind us in the midst of our emotion and in the midst of intensity, intense feelings, remind us of what's important. Loving each other, accepting each other, embracing each other. Lord, give us the strength and the fortitude to continue. Teach us through your word, through your spirit, how to do that. Give us the hope that we can love like you. Thank you that you love us enough to call us to do that. Give us our trust in you to be willing to die to the things that we want, to our own pride, so that we can enjoy life as you really intend it. We just commit ourselves to your spirit. Amen.